This week on Geek Explained, in the finale of our first annual in December, we're discussing one of my favorite comics of the last few years. Join me as I put the Geek Explained spotlight on the good Asian, alongside the comics writer Porn Sock Pichetchode. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is the grand finale of the first ever in December, a month-long series where I'm dedicating the entire month of December to creator-owned comics. We have talked about some really great comics this month, and I want to thank everybody for their support and their kind words on the episodes that have been releasing this month. It means a whole heck of a lot to me, and I hope to make this an annual tradition going forward. But this episode for the finale of our first ever in December is a pretty special one. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite comics featuring, what else, some Asian characters! I know, I know, I always get so excited when I'm talking about Asians in comics, but you know that's a big deal for me! And we're specifically talking about a very good Asian, that being Edison Hark, the good Asian. Yes, that's right, you've heard me gush about it in small doses throughout the podcast when the series was coming out. Well, now you're getting an entire episode of me just talking about how good this story is. And not only that, our guest for this week is Pornsak Pachetcho, the writer of The Good Asian. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation that I cannot wait to share with you. Pornsak is an incredible creator, a wonderful person, and an Eisner Award-winning comic book writer. That's right, we are talking about the Eisner Award winning Good Asian, so I'm very excited to round out in December with this discussion. We're going to be talking about spoilers, we're going to be talking about really the Asian American experience, and we're also going to be talking about his latest comic, which as you are listening to this is dropping today, which is Sandman Universe Presents the Dead Boy Detectives. We'll be covering all of that in the main meat of this episode. We will also have, of course, the final This Week's Comics Countdown for the year of 2022, where I'll be chatting you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. So make sure you stay tuned after the jump for that. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas, and I hope everyone's gearing up for a very happy new year. But without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the final chapter of in december the final chapter of 2022 as i alongside writer porn sack pachette show put the geek explain spotlight on the good asian
1936. Gold. Mention it, and boom. Folks will forgive anything. Take San Francisco, the Golden Gate City. People get so distracted by the Golden, they ignore it's a gate. They ignore why it's a gate, because gates are built for peace of mind, to keep things out, so you never ever have to think about what's trying to get in. Those words kicked off a 10-issue story called The Good Asian, a detective noir drama that followed the adventures of Edison Hark, and to me, was one of my favorite comics that I've read in the past five years. It was everything that I wanted as an Asian American comic book reader, getting to read a story that held so much significance to me, along with a genre that I've loved since I was a little bitty kid, was a delight. And I am so excited as part of our In December uh, event, our month-long series dedicated to shining the spotlight away from the big two and putting them on creator-owned books that I absolutely adore. I am so freaking excited to uh, introduce and welcome to the podcast the writer of The Good Asian, Pornstock Pachetchot. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And it, it was amazing to hear the the first page read out like that. You, you did a great job, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I... The, the one thing that I love always about uh, detective noir stories is how cinematic those opening lines always have to be. And you hit the nail on the head from the Thank first you. issue. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I always get nervous about that because uh, for all of the reasons why you mentioned, I always get nervous about that. even when I look back at that first page, I'm like, oh, is it right? Did I hit it right? Should I gone harder? Like, but it's it's for all it that means a lot because I still second guess that page all the time. <laughs> Well, I, I will tell you just from my experience, that page sets the whole tone for the story, and we're going to be talking about it. Full uh, full disclosure here, folks, we are going to be talking spoilers. We're not going to be hitting on every move beat by beat. We'd be here for a very long time because I want to ask him about literally everything. But for the sake of expediency and for your listening pleasure, uh, we will be hitting on certain uh, spoilerific uh, beats here. So if you haven't read the story, what are you doing? Go read the story and then join us for this discussion. So uh, first off, uh, I want to ask you about kind of your writing career, getting into uh, your craft, how long you've been at it. How did you begin your career as a writer? Was that something you wanted to do when you were growing up? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, it's something I wanted to do, I feel like, ever sort of since high school. I, you know, I wanted to tell stories. I think I had an idea of sort of being a writer. I just never thought it was a possibility for a really long time. Um, I went to high school. I was born in America, but I our family moved back to Thailand around the time I went to high school. And coming out of high school, I just didn't think, you know, you could be, I could come from a, a, even an English teaching, speaking high school in Thailand to sort of be a writer. So to me, writing was always kind of this phase that I was in. And it wasn't until I was in college looking at like old uh, high school journals, which I still shot I kept, um, where I, I read I read about myself four years earlier talking about this writing phase that I was in that I was just like, oh, maybe this isn't a phase. Maybe this is just kind of this thing that I do. Oh, that's so cool. and, and that is when I started like, I've got to take this seriously because the odds are not for me uh, to, to, <laughs> to, to, to do this. So I got to really bust my ass. And it was sort of from there that I, I wanted to sort of be a writer. And it was kind of a long sort of uh, route to take. Uh, you know, I spent 
uh, seven years as an editor and then did about four years as a TV executive. And before I really felt, it's not that I didn't feel comfortable. It just, it was everyone, each of those experiences became these opportunities to learn more, to sort of, to, to hone my craft. And, right. um, and they treated me really well. And so what became like a one year lark to edit comics to see what it was like, you know, at that um, behind that desk turned into 11 years at DC Comics, you know, working in comics and TV. And, uh, and yeah, and before I, and then I'd finally decide like, I want to get back to writing my own stories. That's so cool. Now you, you spoke on, you know, spending a considerable amount of time over at DC. And I know yeah. that I believe you were an editor for a while on Vertigo as well. Yes, yes, I was. So what do you think is kind of, what was the, ba what was that like working on that line? And what was kind of the biggest difference for you working with one of the big two is, as opposed to like working with image, for example? Well, I, so it, it's a little, my experience is a little different there because there I was sort of as an editor and, right. and an image sort of, I'm more as a writer, as a creator. So that's all, those are already going to be sort of two separate, separate uh, experiences. Um, it's funny. Will Dennis just uh, posted, on his Instagram, Will is an editor over at Vertigo. He was one of my mentors over there. And he um, he posted pictures from his old office that he found and all that kind of stuff. And it just led to this sort of outpouring of memories from all of us that oh, like went so through cool. those offices at the time. And it was a magical place. It really, really was. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I remember, cause I was talking about it with Mike Carey, who's a writer that I, that I work with. He wrote Lucifer and the Unwritten and um, amongst many other things, Hellblazer. And, he described it as, you know, it was the only time in his life he felt in the room when it happened as it was happening. Uh, wow. Even, and, and it was, and he said it was like, it's a thrill just to think that you're a part of that. And, and I really do, I think that sums it up so well. Like, I think for all of us, there's so much, I, I, and I literally just, just posted this on Will's Instagram. It at times felt there was so much almost literal magic that was happening because those offices were very close together. There's a cluster of five offices that are very close together. And in the right. cluster of those offices, 100 Bullets, Why the Last Man, The Losers, Fables, you know, Pride of Dad, you know, writers like Grant Morrison, filmmakers like Darren Aronofsky, Neil Gaiman, like they would all work would all pass through and you would get printouts with their pages. And sometimes you'd have to like sit in and like proofread a thing for somebody else and all that. And so when you, take a step and 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 all these new voices that have now become new voices at the time that have become like these big like you know i worked with willow wilson on her first ongoing series and now she's yeah. the creator of kamala khan you know so you got to see all these people sort of at their infancy you know jason aaron jock mm. and and so when you look at where they came you saw like all that magic was there and the idea that anyone could have front row seats to people at the peak of their powers, but also people discovering their voice and discovering what they could do. The idea that anyone could have a front row seat to that is insane. And then to think that it was me and some of my best friends who got to be there, that just, it, 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 it's hard to like really capture just like how special and how magical a time that experience was. And I think, and we talked about it when sort of the, you know, the Vertigo sunsetted. Like, I think we knew, it, like, you don't always have the privilege of knowing uh, when you're going through it, if you're in the good old days. And and I kind right. of felt like we knew that we were in this very privileged time at, at the time. That's amazing. I, 
I I think it's magical when you're be, when you're able to kind of make the strides that you've made and still be able to look back on you know a time when you were doing your your editor thing and being able to like see all this and now you are one of those big names that came out of that group and that's super cool. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's still it, it it's still a thrill for me to. Every single person who uh, likes my stuff that isn't related to me or like I haven't bought (laughs) drinks for or we haven't had dinner with like I haven't had dinner with like it's still a a, it's still something I still need to recalibrate for that 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 enjoys the book and likes the book and says nice things. It's still uh, it's still something I'm getting used to. So I appreciate that quite a bit. I, I know too well how that is. <laughs> Anytime it's like, okay, what favors did I do to you to right. give me any kind of praise? Like, what, yeah, I need yeah. to, like, compartmentalize things. Right, totally, um, totally. <laughs> I don't know if that's, like, an Asian American thing or it what, be, but, like, it it's, might be. <laughs> it's it's definitely, it's, it's funny when you think about that stuff. But let's dive into The Good Asian. Let's dive sure. into the story that captivated me, captivated a lot of people, and obviously captivated a good number of people because you won an Eisner off of this. Thank you. Best limited series. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. No, I'm really that I blown away by that. I was not expecting it. I, I feel actually kind of guilty because I was hanging out with Tom King uh, before we were on a panel. We walked down to the show and we were both nominated for that category. And he was like, you're not nervous. And I'm like, I'm not nervous. It's kind of great. I'm not because like, there's no way I'm going to win. (laughs) <laughs> like either you're gonna win or Ram's gonna win or Tony's gonna win or or Daniel's gonna win. But I'm like such the dark horse. So I get and like and I and I honestly do feel like for the Eisners especially, like being nominated is the prize. Like being nominated, yeah. like and amongst that, you know, that company, it was such a stacked category. I was just like, you know, that is the prize right there. So I've kind of already won it. There's no need. I, I I was late to the ceremony because like I didn't <laughs> think I was gonna win. You know, I was just like, oh, because I, I knew how like my my the, my category was like at the end of the night. So I'm like, I gotta sit through like three hours just to lose. Like, okay, I don't, you know, I don't have to be so punctual. So like, I I so I actually felt now looking back, I feel like I was kind of obnoxious to people because i was so just like no nah, this is great isn't it guys and i was like why aren't you nervous like because i'm gonna lose and so i don't have anything to worry about i could just eat the food and talk to the people and be happy this is great i'm just happy to be here yeah i just totally am <laughs> that's so cool and i will say i remember when the the results of those were coming out that was a fist pump moment oh me. i appreciate I was that, like man. hell yeah like because it's it's so cool when you get to see um and not to say that you're a new voice because you've had previous works infidel yeah. especially that were incredible yeah. But like this was kind of this moment of like like you said like this dark horse coming in and just kind of almost swiping it out from underneath the nose of everybody <laughs> and being like I did this I was I was over the moon I that appreciate this that, book man. got the got the flowers that I I, I very much appreciate it. like I said I, I was not it was it was a shock it was definitely a shock <laughs> to me. so getting into the nitty gritty of the story of the good Asian this is in the vein of your classic detective noir stories, were you a fan of that genre growing up? And did that, did that influence the way that you write your stories? Uh, I wasn't a fan of it growing up. The the, the thing about the, the, I I almost find like, like the 
and I will always sort of see myself as a comic book editor at heart. And but I think the DNA of a comic book editor, like my DNA as a comic book editor, is that you're kind of like a jack of all trades and a master of none. So like ah. you know, like so I knew a lot about noir. Like I watched sort of like the touchstones of noir, but like right. and even now I can I can pick out many, many people, like Will Dennis, my editor, Alex Segura, who just know noir in and out. And I'm not one of those guys. I haven't read anything. But um, I got into noir. I really got into noir and pulp noir, really, because I think to a certain extent, we're all fans of noir because it seeps into so much right. of, you know, storytelling and, and, and action adventure storytelling and comics Absolutely. and all that. So, so we're all fans of noir. So I didn't really get my real education of noir and pulp noir until I was at Vertigo. And it was, you know, being friends with Will. And I don't know which was the first. I mean, he... The first Chandler book he recommended to me was Farewell, My Lovely. I don't know if that's the first noir book he mm. recommended to me. And so, but he was the one that kind of got me into it and really sort of got, got me into it. And, and so, and that, that sort of led me down that path. And then, and this was one of the things where, you know, you, you take your, you, you try to feature your bugs as, as much as you can. When the pandemic happened, uh, it, it gave me the opportunity that as I was writing, I had a lot more free time to read. And so I got to, I, I didn't think I would have the luxury of, of doing it, but I got to be reading nothing but that stuff while I was writing the book. And, and of course, like I knew enough of that stuff to, 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 to you know, to, to plan out the series and sort of figuring it out. But the day-to-day writing, you know, I always thought it would be something I'd have to switch into. And, right. and because we were all at home and there wasn't that much else to do. Yeah. And, I, at the time, I lived with my mother, who watches very specific things. So I would let her watch it. And I would read at the same time. I got to just be living that material all the time. So, um, so that was sort of really helped for the writing of it as well. So, putting this putting this book together, as we've said on the podcast many times, it takes a village to make a comic yeah. book. Yeah, and you really. had a wonderful team with you yeah. on this. Yeah. Can you speak to putting that team together? Were yeah. there any kind of wish lists that you wanted on there? And I mean, how was that we, working we, with everybody I mean, during we that got, time? I mean, we got that, the, the thing I love is like we got our our, our, our wish list. Like you know, that's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I wanted Will, like Will was the guy who got me into Pulp Noir. So he, there was no one I trusted more. And, and so, you know, so I, I started with him. And so like, and he was on, and he was on board and he tells the story. He remembers exactly when I pitched it to him because he was driving up to like the Cape while it was happening. He had to like pull over to like talk, to talk about it. So like, um, so like, so I remember that. And then, and then, um, you know, next was, and this is how I always build the books. Like I'm one of the few people that start with my editor. And then, then after that, we talk about an artist and, um, and it took a while. We couldn't, I had naively thought like this style that we were looking for, you know, it feels like there's a lot of Asian sort of, you know, artists that are working that style. And one of the things right. I found is they were all swept up by Marvel DC, which was great, but they <laughs> yeah, were like, all, all of them, all of them <laughs> had jobs. So I'm like, Oh wow, this is a lot tougher than, than, than I thought it was going to be. And, um, and, but we knew the style we were going for and, and we're just like, you know, like what's the Asian American sort of Darwin cook? Like, what does yeah. that look like? Like, what does that look like? And Will was like, oh, that looks like Cliff Chang. Like, let's just, and Cliff's a friend of ours. So let's ask yeah. Cliff. And I'm like, Cliff is way too busy and way too, <laughs> you know, too highfalutin to be bothering with us. Even if he is a friend and a great friend too. Uh, but, but. But Quill's like, let's just ask him. Like, you know, and so he asked, and he was he was he was working on Catwoman at the time, let me say, right. which hadn't been announced at that point. And he was writing, drawing, and literally doing everything on it. So like, he, there yeah. was no way he had time. So, but he was just like, I like the project. 
let me think about if, you know, if any, if anyone comes to mind, I'll let you know. And then, and this, I, I love Alex's part of the story. So Alex was, Alex had uh, just finished a book called Outpost Zero for, mm-hmm. Alex, Alex Defengi was a, uh, an artist living in France, working on French comics, and he liked his stuff, and he wanted to break into the American comic scene. He showed, he met Cliff at New York Comic Con, showed him his samples, and Cliff was just like, oh, I hear the guys at Skybound are looking for an artist. You might be good for that. And that's how he got the book Outpost Zero. I tell this story that's so much cool. that like Cliff is going to hate me because people are just going to keep showing their samples to Cliff now. <laughs> but, um, but uh, and then he got Outpost Zero that was for a year and a half. And then Outpost Zero was wrapping up. Uh, Alex was putting his samples together again to sort of like, want, and honestly, like Alex and Cliff were friends. So like he was catching mm-hmm. up with, with Cliff. Now in the meanwhile, while this was happening, which I find fascinating is so Alex is in sort of his late thirties and at the age of 34, he finds out he's adopted. And, and it's wow. a very casual conversation with his, with his, with his mother. Uh, it was because like he was about to have a kid. And so she wanted her to him to know all this and mm-hmm. kind of as an aside, she drops a fact that his father is like Vietnamese or half Vietnamese and, and all that. Wow. And Alex had always thought his father, his, his birth father was half Vietnamese or Vietnamese. And, um, and Alex had always thought his father was Syrian, Syrian. So at the age of 34, he's like, I found out I was Asian and I had no yeah. idea before that. And so that led to him, you know, this, and, and he'd always loved to travel before that. And he traveled right. to Asia a lot and he found an affinity for it and he never really knew why. And so, and he had always talked about it with his wife about going to Southeast Asia. And I think all with all those things aligning and him finding out he's Vietnamese, it kind of led him to like go to Vietnam and live in Vietnam. And so, yeah. and so he would talk about how being in Vietnam and living in Vietnam, it was the first time it's like when he walked around, he saw people that kind of looked like him and he never had that experience before because he didn't right. know he was Asian. And so... So he has all this in his mind. He's living in Vietnam. He's with Cliff. He's looking for more work. They're talking because they're friends. And this is the thing I love about Alex. Like so many freelancers I talk to, we talk about work. We talk about books. We talk about all that sort of stuff. Alex will just talk about life. He's like, what are you doing? How's dating? How's, how's your relationships? All that. That's what, that's what he wants to talk about. And so, and so I'm sure you know, there was some version of that conversation that was happening between Cliff, Cliff and Alex. And Alex is like, yeah, I'm going to this thing where like, I found that I was Asian. I went to Vietnam. I'm trying to figure out what that means for me. I'm looking for new work at the same time. And Cliff was like, oh, do I have the book for you? <laughs> and, and, and that is how... Alex got to us. Is That's incredible. In this time in his life, when Alex is going through this time, where he was asking all these very similar questions, and like, like the book, you know, you know, Alex's, you know, you know, Alex, you know, Alex's, Alex's mother, Alex's mother is white. Oh no, shit! I always make that mistake. She's she's from she's from Djibouti. She's she's from Djibouti. So, um, but but I think there's sort of white people in his family or something like that. I should stop talking. I could be getting that completely wrong, but um. <laughs> But 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 there was so much that was about the book that was that spoke to sort of his experience. That's amazing. That um that uh that that he was just like yeah it felt like this was calling this this was a calling for him. So so he, and then when I when he got the work he's like yes this is thank God none of those other people were available because this is yeah. exactly what the book needed to be and we didn't know we didn't know Alex was out there and that's the thing about comics too I find there's so much talent that's just that is just lurking in the corners that right. um, when you find someone, it's just like, it's not even sometimes like, like, Oh, I want this person. Sometimes you're looking, like, I want this thing. And I don't even know if that person exists that embodies this thing that I'm looking for. And then right. somehow through whatever life and fate happens, 
you stumble on, you're like, wow, this person exists. It does everything I want it to do. And that, that's kind of what it was like with Alex. Like everything that book needed to be, he, he was that, that thing. And, uh, and then from there, it was, all right, how can we give him the best colorist? And we gave him a bunch of colorists. And Lee Lowridge, who, again, another friend, uh, he's like, Alex is like, I don't know who this Lee guy is, um, <laughs> but this is perfect. So Lee was our first choice. Uh, Jeff Powell, who I work with, was my first choice because I work with him on Infidel. And every single time I've worked with Dave Johnson, it starts the same way with me going, it'd be great to have someone who could do covers like Dave Johnson and Will Dennis saying, why don't we just hire Dave Johnson then? And me going like, he'll do this? And I'm like, yes, Portzak, he will do this. And that's how we got <laughs> Dave Johnson. So we got, and then I, I worked with him on Unknown Soldier. It was the exact same process. It's like, I kind of like someone to do like, you know, like, like, like Hundred Bullets covers. It's like, Dave is available, you know? And um, so, uh, so yeah, so we, we got sort of our, our you know, our, our, our top sort of pick of people. And it, it was, yeah, it, it, was, it was great. That's amazing. And that's it it kind of seems like it's one of those uh it, it's a classic heist montage where you're yeah. like okay, we need this, we need this. Oh, I've got the perfect guy for this. Yeah. And all throughout and I mean the visual language of this book is stunning from top Thank to you. bottom. And with it being just as strong, it's one of those I, I think there's, and this is no disrespect to anybody, but like there's a certain litmus test when you find a book that, oh, the art, the art is really strong, but the writing is a little, you know, a little sure. could be desired or vice yeah, versa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But this was one of those times where it was like, I mean, both the art and the writing firing on all cylinders, it felt like a book that you don't run across very often. And, and that's what immediately jumped out to me and what I would tell people. It's like, hey, you want a book that has both things that are incredible? <laughs> this is the book. And that's it's awesome. Asian. Like you yeah. need to, it was, it was a huge thing for me. And so I'm glad that it kind of all came together because this is a story I can't picture anyone. And as as talented as Cliff Chang is, and as much <laughs> as I would love to have him on this podcast someday, <laughs> I can't I can't think of anyone drawing this other than Alexander Stefanki. Like, and he's I mean, he's doing great work now too. He's yeah. uh doing that uh with Jason uh, Aaron. Once upon a time. Yes. Yeah. Jason Aaron, who's friend of the podcast, is it's great to see good people succeed. And yeah, to 100%. see both of you being able to like jump in and do these amazing stories it it makes my heart sing it really thank does you, thank you so thank I'm, you. I'm excited for that and so speaking to this book to these characters you talked about not being a fan of the uh of the genre growing up or at least being mm. steeped into it i don't think you would know that reading this book because well, well, edison hark I, I was just gonna I, say I Edison Park is is one of those characters who like feels ripped straight out of that genre. Yeah, 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 and, and he's and he's meant to be. And I should say it's it's not that I wasn't a fan. It's just mm. I wasn't I wasn't the super fan. Like I think right. people, Absolutely. you know, like I wasn't that guy who like who had every book he could tell. Like I know a lot of those guys. Like I'm friends <laughs> with a lot of those guys who knows. I am books. that like, guy. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Okay. Every year they like read those books. Like and I like yeah. and I feel like such a poser when I'm around those guys <laughs> because like I know it, but I'm not like super super fan. Like I don't go to conventions yeah, yeah, yeah. or anything like that. You know, like right. So, um, but no, no, no. But I do sort of love all that sort of stuff. And and yeah, part of, but part of it too, I think was. Uh, Infidel was great training for, right. for the good Asian because Infidel for me was, and that was a genre I knew very well, which was horror. Yeah. And so, and the thing that, and the thing I love about horror geeks too is that 
I don't know what it, it's part of, I guess, how hard works. There's all these like subgenres and like, like right. you can, you can track the tropology of horror. There's a very distinct tropology in horror. And yeah. one of the things that Infidel was, it was a ghost story. And so, and because horror has a very distinct tropology, it, it's something, it's a little bit easier to say, okay, these are the moves in a horror, horror movie. Here's how I subvert them or add context to them. So I can talk about the things I want to talk about within the yeah. tropes of of a horror movie and and so and that's kind of what the lesson that infidel was so i a lot of it for me was taking those tools and applying them to sort of the the gumshoe noir sort of thing of like okay so what are the and there's subtler tropes in because noir has gotten so mainstream and it's so like everywhere the tropes of noir they're definitely still there but we take them so much more for granted than we yes. do. Like we know the femme fatale, we know, you yeah. know, and all that sort of stuff. But like, but some of the more subtle stuff we sort of take for granted. And so, but so, so looking at like noir in terms of like, okay, here are the sort of the tropes of noir. And, 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 and to me, it's like a cover song. Like you don't want to go too far <laughs> away. Otherwise it stops being the song. Otherwise you might right. as well just be making up a whole new song. Why do a cover yeah. at all? So you need a little bit of that familiarity with it. And then for me, it was, okay, so let's take those beats that we know and and how do I either subvert them or add more context to them so it helps me talk about this other thing that I want to talk about and and so right. for me it was a it was a lot of that and I and I love and to me that's why I love genre I love the tropes of genre yes. I love playing with the tropes you know and um and and so so a lot of that and so yeah so Edison Harp was meant to be sort of ripped of that classic noir protagonist but but you know through this very specific lens where and it was this realization that like oh. And it's one of the reasons why the book, how the book happened was realized like, oh, the tropes of noir, they align very well with sort of the the story about Asia, America yes. that I kind of want to tell about yeah. in that time, but also sort of throughout time. And so the book itself is very steeped in historical context. Like it's it's something that you don't often see in a lot of books that reach wider audiences is this lens on what's going on in the world and our past especially i feel like at least when i was growing up you know they don't teach a lot of this stuff in schools yeah yeah they and so like how why was it important for you to tell a story so set set so firmly in our history rather than doing like a fictional setting like its own like sin city or anything like that well part of it for me was that's where the project started the project started for me because you know, my dad was really obsessed with uh, sort of Chinese Chinese history, and especially during his later years. And so when he passed, um, I part of my dealing with that loss was uh, getting more inv- interested in Chinese history as well. And that, for whatever reason, led me to Chinese American history. And as you say, we aren't taught about this stuff in school. We aren't taught about the Chinese Exclusion Act in school. We aren't talking about the Johnson Reed Act of 1924. So I didn't right. realize the ban of Asians. And to, so much so that the amount I research I had to do just to make sure I didn't misinterpret what I initially read, you know, like, yeah. because I just assumed I must be misinterpreting something that there's no way this could have happened and me to be right. so unaware of it. And so that happened along with the same time with my memory of like characters like Charlie Chan or Mr. Moto or Mr. Wong, uh, these Asian crime solvers that were so popular in the thirties and forties during a time where like Asians couldn't enter the country. And so yeah. The initial idea was I wanted to sort of marry those two two things, but then there's this. But then the other piece of it too was, I do think because of because of us not 
being as educated and articulate about Asian American history, there's a little bit of one step forward, one step back when we talk right. about progress for Asian Americans contemporarily, Absolutely. where, you know, where we'll talk about like, oh, these are the strides. And you'll be like, yeah, but that's, we actually, you know, there was more about that in the 1970s, yeah. you know, in, in, a, right. in, in a way. And, and it's because we aren't really aware of sort of the history and how that stuff sort of came to be. So for me, there wasn't a way to talk about the Asian, like if you want to talk about the Asian American experience now, and because, and because so much of the book is me trying to wrap my head around it as well. Right. And, so, and so for me, it was like, well, we have to think about sort of where it started to kind of understand sort of where we are now with, with, with these things. And again, it, it was a process for me of being like, oh, and, and it made me look at things contemporary a little, a little bit differently, uh, you know, just be like, oh, well, this is what it was like in the past. And like, you know, one of the things that, that, that uh, I found out in my research that is part of that, that is part of the text in the book is the fact that the model minority myth was a reaction and a, a, a attempted self-preservation against sort of white violence that was sort of at the time. Right. It wasn't something that we just innately inherited and into a large part, it was something that we put upon ourselves for protection, you know, and, and that was not something I knew. And, and so just, so just knowing things like that, context like that helped me understand sort of this ongoing project that we, I guess, we, all us Asian Americans have, what does it kind of mean to be Asian American and, and what does progress of that sort of mean at, at this point in time in our lives? Right. Yeah. And, and it speaks to the kind of the disconnect and the diaspora yeah. that we often get on yes. trying to be, Asian enough or American yeah. enough and trying to find that, that mixture, that yes. whatever balance we need to find. And I think you hit on it a lot in this book on Thank the you. ideas of what does it mean to be Asian? What does it mean to be American? What does it mean to be both in yeah. the society that looks at all of those titles in very different ways? Right. And you mentioned the, uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yeah. How was it important to you to include that specifically in the story? And how did it affect kind of the the narrative for you in that? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, to, to me, like, again, it started with the Chinese Exclusion Act for me. So it was really important. And, and to, it, it was important to me in this story because that act, it is the shadow that that is looming over all the events and all the characters and everyone, regardless of the privilege that they have, whether they're, the, they're rich like the millionaire family, the Caraways, or they're poor like the working class, they are all in the shadow and have to navigate around that reality. And right. part of what the book is about or part of what motivates and, and fuels the book is that it doesn't matter who you are on that spectrum. If, if you're interacting with Asian Americans, you are affected by it and, and there's nothing you can do to stop yourself from being affected by it. And, and so, so it was very important that that was there from the very opening, because there is absolutely a version of this book where we just start with Edison in San Francisco, yeah. but you need to start at, at that camp to, because that camp one, yeah. is, it sets the context for what the world is because that world influences everything the characters are doing for the next, you know, nine issues. Absolutely. And I, rereading it for for the purposes of this interview i had completely and i guess like getting that stretched across you know 10 months or so yeah. you forget we never follow up with kai yeah and that yeah. bothers the hell out of me <laughs> uh, on a fundamental level that yeah, poor boy yeah. with the lopsided yeah. ears not yeah, unlike yeah. myself i was like no what happened to kai i need to know this to, to be able to sleep at night um yeah, it's it's fascinating when you look at Edison Hark as a character 
in the midst of all of this because he's his whole deal he was uh basically taken in by the caraways after the murder of his mother and there's all of that very uh murky history that he has with both frankie with victoria and especially with mason and when he comes onto the scene he has to face a lot of the same uh, prejudice and the same issues yeah. that people who have been there for years, he just gets to take a couple steps forward because he has a badge on him. Right. Yeah. And he feels very much to me like a character that I'm sure you drew inspiration from, like an easy Rollins. who yeah. also had to yeah. deal with 100%. that kind of racism, that kind of bigotry, even though, yeah, he's, he's there. He has a job to do. Yeah. Um, in that classic, uh, that classic vein of like an Easy Rollins, you mentioned uh, Charlie Chan, who's based yeah. off of Che Guevara. Yeah. Um, what to you makes Edison stand out and kind of stand shoulder to shoulder with those those icons in the genre? Wow. Uh, well, I don't know if he stands shoulder to shoulder with those icons in the genre. Uh, I'll let you know I, he does. Okay, but... I appreciate that. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, and and uh, what what I hope makes him stand out is, and I, and I think it is. A, I think it is a classic noir thing of a man who is burnt out, but at the same time means well, and he feels constantly trapped. And, yeah. I, you know, I've heard people, I've heard people say they love Edison Hark, and there's a part of me that's like, well, that's a little fucked up because he doesn't do all <laughs> the, the greatest things to people. And I, but I also hear people who say they hate Edison Hark, even though they're fans of the book. And I'm right. also thinking like, yeah. In, but then, but then I also think like, yeah, and I get that too. But at the same time, like, if you were in his position, like, what would you do, and like, yeah. how much of it would actually be different? And I think part of hope, I think what part of what what people respond to about Edison Hark is that he really is a product of his time. He's a product right. of trying to survive. I mean, the only thing he could have done to, like, the only mistake maybe he made was this idea that he could be a bridge between communities. Yeah. But at the same time, if he hadn't, if if it wasn't for people thinking that, you, we wouldn't have the pro progress that we have. So right. it's part of this, you know, contradiction and is this constant challenge, I feel like, that that all immigrant Americans sort of have, where Absolutely. there is a need to be one of the first. And yes. at the same time, are you making a step forward? Or are you making a step back? It's really hard to tell, but but some people need to make that step to find out. And, um, and, and I think part of what hopefully people relate to for Edison is, um, is the fact that he tried and for, and even as deeply flawed as he is, he did at least try. And, and even if you hate him, what could you have done differently? You know, to 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 not be him. I I I think that com he is as complex, hopefully, as the world that he lives in and uh, that he's trying to navigate. Absolutely, and I think there's there's something to be said about stories like the any kind of noir genre needing a complex character who yeah. doesn't always make the most morally yeah. great decisions, yeah. but it's in service of their moral compass whether right. they you know it's not whether it's right or wrong it's whether it's in their view towards their north star yeah and i think that's that's something that absolutely makes him stand with those those icons of the genre and i think that he's gonna have staying power due to the fact that he is so complex and we i feel like by the end of this 
even though he has gone through this fundamental change, both physically and uh, metaphorically, uh, there's still, we're only hitting like on the, t- the tip of the yeah. iceberg and there's so much more that he could do, yeah. which is really exciting. And even in the book, he deals with a lot of uh, identity yeah. issues. Like he, what I really love through reading the book is this weird parallel that he has with uh silas woodward mm. the the fake we long yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The two of them both dealing with like struggling with identity and a lot of for me personally like a lot of like mixed race themes yeah. not being enough of one to be accepted by the other and did you intend that that parallel and how much do you think that I mean, how much does the, do you think that kind of diaspora impacts like the Asian American experience? Because it's an issue that we all deal with. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a big sort of question. I mean, that was absolutely, that was absolutely intentional. Uh, I, I wanted, I wanted our villain to sort of be our, our mirror of our hero. And, and because, yeah. partly because in that way too, because they're connected in that way, through examining the villain, I can also examine the hero. So, right. so you, you, you do sort of that in, inversely. So that was sort of intentional, but also it was sort of a bigger conversation of to do a book called the good Asian is such a loaded title and it's such a loaded yeah. concept and, and not just even Chinese sort of Asian. Right. right. And so because the, it is such a wide di- diaspora. And so I never wanted to, I think the fear, it, there's a quote and of course now I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but uh, there's a quote that it's along the sometimes says like every every stand for authenticity mean you know forces someone to justify their own authenticity you know right. um, and, and so there's a little bit of like if I'm going to say that something's Asian well like what is Asian like is it an Asian man is it an Asian woman is it a is it someone who's full East Asian if they're half East Asian if they're partly South Asian like where do all those sort of pieces and one book can't attempt to carry all all of that right and so so part of me was just trying as much as i could to just not because it's such a complex multifaceted thing to yeah. have as to try to incorporate as many of those facets as i could in the book even being aware that i couldn't incorporate all of them and just hope and pray i incorporated it enough to kind of get a conversation started and so right. so and and the question of sort of like half asian full asian that is sort of a very big and it's a very complex question sort of within the Asian American community. And and I would also sort of think too, it is it, it, it is a complex question in terms of the American community, the immigrant American community. Right. It is, I think the the fact that we don't have language to talk about it, or, or our language isn't calibrated enough to talk about it. The fact that we aren't talking about it enough is as a community in public, that is also part of what, um, our challenges politically as, as, as a, as a group, you know, there, there is a lot of talk about, um, there is a lot of talk, uh, you know, in during come election time about Latinos who vote and Democrats aren't getting Latinos enough and there's just going here and there's going that. But then when you look, cause I, I just read this fantastic book called inventing Latinos, the name of the author now escapes me. Um, but she talks about sort of the history of all the different groups, uh, d- different uh, Latino groups that have sort of come to America. And, and she talks about how complex that is. Uh, like, this was shocking to me. 40% of Cuban Americans in Florida uh, uh, self-identify as white, you know? And so, so wow. when you think, and so when you talk about like, why are Latinos, you know, going Republicans? Like, well, well, when you consider the fact that a good large of the 
portion of those Latinos don't consider themselves Latinos. Like that's partly yeah. one of the reasons why they might be going going towards Republicans, right? So like we don't have the because of our language of talking about how complex American identity is beyond anything besides white and black. Um, it, it, we see that sort of politically and, and how afraid sort of political powers and how harnessing sort of the, the interests of political groups are, and, uh, of, diff of different groups are. So, um, uh, so, so to me, part of just trying to incorporate all of that was trying to, because the book is a conversation and hopefully is meant Absolutely. to start a conversation about just like, what is the good Asian? What, what does that mean? What does that include? Yeah. What does it not include? You know, and it, it, it hopefully tries to just throw a lot of questions up in the air so we talk about them. And, and so that's kind of where, so Sil the, the relationship between Silas and Edison is very much about just like, how similar are they? How different are, are they? Where's one right and where's the other one wrong? And, and I don't have the answer to those questions. And those, those characters certainly don't have the answers to those questions. <laughs> but it is a, a conversation that, that does feel like we need to have as just as a community. Absolutely. And I think this book also came out at a very charged time yeah. for our community. I mean, yeah. at, when, while this was coming out, like we had violence and distrust against Asian Americans was at an all time high. And yeah. when you look at kind of the climate at that time, it was not unlike the climate that is presented in the book and the climate yeah. that was at the time and, you know, that the book is taking place. Like, yeah. So I want to ask you, how important was it for you to tell this story? Because I know in issue eight, I remember reading in the back matter that initially issue eight was supposed to be half the half yeah, the yeah. length, and there was only supposed to be nine issues. Yeah. And how did that change, and how did that impact the story? I mean, that you know, it it, it very much it wasn't a that particular decision, and, and all that wasn't in a way wasn't a conscious choice. It was, it, it you know, like and I mentioned it in in the book. Um, that came from a conversation with my editor and says like you it feels like you have a lot more story to tell here give yourself yeah. the room to tell it and because like you know the book was planned so far in advance and it was a surreal experience we launched the book you know the same we the announcement for the book happened the same week that national news finally acknowledged that anti-asian crimes were on on the rise yeah. and e even though it had been happening for a while so right. i had no idea how relevant the book was going to be i had no idea i i in that first month and thank god you do interviews and they don't come out in the order that you do them because I was trying to figure out how to, I didn't know how to talk about it. You know, I, right. I didn't know I, it was all too new and it was all too, I was kind of processing in real time. And so by the time it was came to issue eight, it, it, I, enough time had passed that I had things I want, I had things I want to say and uh, uh, yeah. about it. And, and but part of the thing too, and part of what I learned from my research of the book was that, you know, it was it's late into the 1970s where Chinese people were scared to leave Chinatown because they were scared of they were scared of violence. So it, all of this is very and again, like um, the America we know of that that you know that is more accepting or more open to people of different colors, different ethnicity. That started in 1965. It's not that old. Right. So. So it, in that sense, it, it makes sense why the Chinese were scared to leave Chinatown before 19, 1970. And so part of that, the, all the stuff happening in 2020 was part of that had kind of always been a part of America and part of, you know, and, and it's one of the things that we've we're found and we're still trying to find is like, you know, how do we, can we, hopefully we can progress and evolve sort of beyond that. Well, and I think that the, you, you speak through that, 
uh, that you speak to that um, that intention and that climate yeah. so well through a lot of the characters, especially. I mean, I would say probably secondary protagonist Lucy Fan, who is yeah. a dynamite character. She yeah, is so you. fun, thank um, you. And she kind of reminds me a lot as well of uh, another character in a book I also love: Superman Smashes the Clan. Oh yeah, Yang, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 Lanchin. Lynch and Lee, the yeah. two, I think they would be best friends, personally. They, they totally like, would. They 100% would. Absolutely. It feels like Lucy Fan is one of those characters that you can follow her story even past this. And, yeah. it, you know, experience what's going on, how she uh, how she reacts to everything that's going on. And I loved seeing, I was really, when I, I remember when the book was coming out month to month, um, I remember we hadn't seen Lucy in a couple issues yeah. and I was like, oh man, where's Lucy? What's going on here? <laughs> so I, I was glad that she she factored into that final act and I thought that her dynamic with Edison worked so well. And her being there for that, you know, that final issue, the two of them having that last, you know, conversation about how much has changed, how much has remained the same. Yeah. Um, it also spoke to that last issue, one of... I think for me, unintentionally, one of my favorite characters, uh, Terrence Chang, mm. there is, he gives the, what, what I've dubbed the chop suey speech yeah, at yeah, the yeah. end of this, at the end of this issue. And I love this. I Thank genuinely, you. I love that speech. I mean, the line here, I, w- I want to read because I don't want to butcher this. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing more American than fighting for something new. Uh, it, it's going to stick with me forever. Like it's this you. wonderful this wonderful monologue about just saying like we are something new we are not and again speaking to that diaspora that we were talking about like we're still trying even you know this book takes place in the you know mid to late 30s we're still trying to decide what that label means and if that label even covers everything that means did you intend on terrence being the person to essentially kind of give that thesis statement on the story even though like because terrence for as much as he drives the story he's kind of a passive character in the actual narrative yes 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 it's funny um i'm I'm really happy you mentioned that line too i knew terrence terrence's speech about chop suey i knew that was coming i always sort of knew that was coming i knew he was going to give that perspective because he is sort of that optimistic like he is a different type of um mirror to Edison, where right. he, you know, he's a different path that Edison could have taken. Uh, yes and no. But, um, <laughs> uh, and, and um, but so I always knew that he would present that path. But the thing that, uh, and I, this is why I really appreciate uh, what you mentioned in that line is for all of my books, there is one line in the book that writing the book teaches me. And, and, and that I don't know that to me was like, oh, this is what this book is about. And I don't know it when I'm writing the book. And for me, for the good Asian, that was that line that like, I didn't know that sort of go going in when I was writing infidel, I had a moment at the end where the characters taught me what I believed, which is part of what, what my first book infidel was about was that, uh, idealism and optimism is it, that I feel about it the way uh, Thurgood Marshall felt about democracy. It's a mm. deeply flawed process, but it's the best that we've come up with so far. And that's how I feel about idealism and optimism. Um, and, and for me, and I learned that writing that book. And what I learned about writing The Good Asian is that line that you just sort of quoted, 
that fighting for something new is part of what being American is. And that is the Asian American experience sort of it's sort of in that, that that is the pursuits and the journey sort of in a, in a nutshell. And it might be more than just the Asian American experience. It might be the immigrant Absolutely. American experience. It might just be the American experience as a result of that. Um, so yeah, so, so, so the answer is yes and no. I, I knew <laughs> of the, I knew of Edison, of Ter- Terrence's big monologue. I knew about the chop suey. I, I, that particular line, the writing the book got me to that, to, to that realization. That's amazing. Um, so as we're, as we're wrapping up talking about the good Asian, uh, the story very specifically ends with Edison, new face and all, uh, I, I love genuinely love the end of this book where he's accosted by some hoodlums saying uh, yeah there ain't no cops here he's like you're right there aren't and he socks that guy on the jaw um and the book closes with edison harkwell return can you give us any clues on when we might see him again oh god uh i don't know if i can because i don't know which is not to say that i i don't know i there will definitely be a sequel i am working on the sequel um, fantastic <laughs> the the books take a while to research and for sure the, the, the problem that i have now is i've set this bar where, <laughs> where there's so much work that goes into it and because like and like a lot of times when i'm talking about this book i feel like as, as an actor you, you you're you're probably aware of the anecdote of like when dustin hoffman was doing marathon man and yes. he's doing marathon man and i think he had to be tortured or he had to be or or he was just coming in from like a jog. And so he like yeah. ran around the block and like all this sort of stuff. And he's exhausted, ready there for the take. And Sir Lawrence Olivier is standing there and he's with his cigarette and he goes, Dustin, it's called acting. And, <laughs> and I kind of feel like people react to that when I talk to them about my process of the good Asian. It's just like, like, oh, I got to do this research. I got to check this stuff and I got to check that stuff. And like, Florence, can't you just make stuff up? Isn't that what it's, it's a, <laughs> that's what we do is we make stuff up. And so, and, and I will also say, too, that, like, part of the research, too, is, like, you think you have a thing, and it's like, oh, the research doesn't pan out, and it doesn't, you know, a lot of, I, like, I built a lot of the, the, the my ideas for the sequel around this historical fact. It's like, oh, the historical yeah. f- documents might have been completely inaccurate. It might have been a, a whole set of lies. Oh, so now I have to, like, <laughs> find other reference. So it turns into this whole thing. So and all which almost a long way to saying is a sequel is coming. I don't know when because it's, <laughs> it's it's I have to get over the research and like figure it out so it all is it all fits in the same way that the first volume fit at so that it doesn't the the the, the project for the good agent has always been and I set it up in the first uh I set up what I thought was the only arc I set up in the first arc and now <laughs> I I feel like I have to pay it through is are these stories that can sit alongside history that not, yeah. that don't contradict any historical pillars that are happening there while still interacting with it. And unfortunately that takes a lot of homework. And now <laughs> I've, I've set myself up this bar where I, I have to do a ton of work to, to tell every story. Cause I know what the story is. I just don't right. know how it fits into the history. So yeah. <laughs> but that's for me that that's really cool to know that, you know, you're putting that amount of work into it. Like take all the time you need because like <laughs> all the time and the work that you put into this to not only, cause I'm, I'm a sucker for period pieces and like having the historical context, having the back matter in every single issue is something you don't often see in books yeah, yeah. for you to dive into the historical, uh, 
uh, tenets of your story to dive into cultural references, interviews with the team. I thought was really cool. Awesome. Uh, it's something awesome. that you don't see. And it's something that was kind of enchanting about the book cool. because it's like, you know, you, you, you see often on uh, like HBO shows, like you get the full episode and then you get like a half hour of like behind the scenes for the episode. And that's what yeah. it felt like. And it was one of those yeah, kind yeah. of like cinematic experiences. So I really appreciate that. Cool. And I'm glad cool. that, First of all, I'm glad that there's a sequel because I can now like I can breathe that sigh of relief, but I'm glad that it's getting the amount of time and the amount of love that you obviously put into the first volume. Yeah, yeah. I, that was definitely I mean, the first volume took many years to do because just to find the opportunity to tell it. And so right. I don't have the luxury to spend that many years doing it. <laughs> so I've got to find a way to get the same results with a better system. So well, I'm very excited about this. Whenever it comes out, I will be pre-ordering every cover. Thank Day you. one, no question. <laughs> but I do want to turn the, uh, as we're wrapping up here, turn the discussion over to something that is coming out. Listener, as you're listening to this right now, as you're listening to this, this is available on your store shelves. Uh, Dead Boy Detectives. Yeah. You are so jumping onto this story. I'm so excited to have you on this. Like, it's, I, I, I've, lo- I've always loved, obviously, the detective aspect of it, but like getting you. It feels like a natural progression from the good Asian into a story like this. How did you get involved with the story? Were you were you recruited for it? Did you have a pitch for it? Uh, a, a little bit of everything. I, I was recruited. You know, they they were looking for some more stuff for the Sandman universe. I found I found that out, and so yeah, and so Edwin and Charles were. I love those characters so much. They are. I mean. Neil Gaiman in the Sandman universe, like all he does is make wonderful characters. Yeah, and so, so true. So like, um, it's, yeah, it's just, it's all he does. And so, but those two specifically spoke, spoke to me. And so, and what I wanted, so I, I, and it was a little bit of the stuff that I like to do. So it's part a detective story. It's part horror. And because the other sort of, I, the way I kind of like describe the book is that it's sort of like a Sandman universe take on like Stranger Things. Because it's like about yeah. kids and we get into some horror stuff and we get into some emotional stuff and it feels sort of, it feels kind of YA. They meet some other sort of, and, and we get into the world and this is what was important to me. And it, and it makes the book as personal to me as the good Asian is and was, was they, they interact with Thai ghosts. And they, um, and they, uh, and um, it, they're interacting with Thai ghosts and Thai horror. And so I get to talk about, you know, the good Asian was a place for me to sort of talk about being Asian, uh, but Dead Boy Detectives became a, now becomes a place for me to talk about being Thai. And which is, yeah. and, and, I've, and that's the other thing, I've never seen that. I've never seen, right. you, know, you know, like Thai food is everywhere, but yeah. like I've never seen, in, in a mainstream American comic, I've never seen, Thai characters, you know, there was Vertigo Pop Bangkok that Jonathan Bankin wrote and Giuseppe Camaculli drew back in the day, but that was more from the American's perspective and looking at Thailand, but like right. actual from a Thai perspective and from Thai Americans, I never seen that before. And so, yeah. so kind of like for the good Asian, I wanted it to represent all those different possibilities and those different perspectives, even, even knowing that's impossible to represent sort of all of them. And, right. and that was the thing that was super exciting for me. And, and it's, it's a very emotional book for me too, because like it's Sandman and like, I started off as a vertigo editor. So like I started off right. like protecting all this sort of stuff. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. And so to be able to do that, to do, work in some horror, to work in sort of, you know, Thai, Thai culture. And then the other thing that I think is so, 
I can't believe I get a chance to do this because as a cynical comic book fan, I, when I hear this, this sounds like things you make up like to sell books, but it's actually not. It's, it's true. Like this was a super, because of all the ties sort of aspects and, and the detective and horror, it's a very personal book that like you say, hopefully, you know, takes all the stuff that I'm doing and sort of progresses it to a, to a newer stage, to a new stage. But it's a very, very sort of personal book. And then meanwhile, you know, James Tynan in, in Nightmare Country, I'm in Universe Nightmare Country, if you read any of yeah. James's books, and I read all of James's books, <laughs> you know that Nightmare Country is a very personal story for James because it's right. all of these themes that he does in his career own work, and they're very much present in Nightmare Country. And he's just using, you know, the Sandman universe to do, to examine different aspects of stuff that he's very clearly very, very interested in, you know? And so, so that's a personal book for him. So the idea that he can take sort of one character and lend that character to me. And so, so what, what works, how it works is like, Thessaly is, is the focus of issue six of Nightmare Country. And then she, and by the end of Nightmare Country, she, you're told she go, something happens and she goes off and does something. And that yeah. something happens will, is, is what Dead Boy Detectives is sort of about. And it's That's wrapped so up cool. in this like personal story that I have. And when my personal story is done, I'm going to give Thessaly back to James and he's <sighs> going to take the next sort of stage of the story. And, and I feel like when you hear that, there is this natural instinct to say, well, one should have happened before the other. Like what, mm -hmm. you know, like it should, like there's actually instinct to say, oh, well, James wanted a spinoff. So you had to figure something out or, oh, you wanted to do this thing. And they try to figure out how to fit it into James. But like, these were natural things we were both doing and they found a place. They, and then we kind of realized like, oh, wow, here's this great place where you're touching on stuff that I was going to touch on anyway. So like, and I don't, and yeah. the way you touch on it doesn't stop the way I want to touch on it later. So we can have all be part of this bigger story where neither me nor James ha has to like, there, I mean, there, there's none of James in my book because it's all me. And there's none of me in my book because it's all James, but yet we still get to work in the same universe and share our toys basically. Like, I just think that's so, it's like a fan. I just think that's so cool. And, and so like, I can't believe like to have like, it's like, to me, it's like the best uh, uh, parts of like shared universe storytelling, but so often in the shared universe, because there's so much corporate stuff at play, you don't get to be right. as personal with the stuff. And so the idea, and again, it's a testament to Neil and Neil Gaiman who like just built this universe that, that let room for this stuff to happen. But yeah, but I, I, that's what I think is so cool about the book too. Like, I can't believe like something like this sort of exists and then i get to do all this stuff that's like really important to me that i've never seen before and and then get to do it with like with dc so they have like the muscle to get like yoshitaka yeah. um, amano to do like a cover which yeah, is crazy so to me cool it's so cool it's so cool <laughs> so like it so seems yeah. like it's it seems like it's it, it almost feels like a a full circle with you talking about seeing the magic of vertigo back when you were an editor and now being able to essentially neil has set up his own vertigo uh <laughs> yeah, to so, like, yeah. the same universe and being able to like inspire and now i think editors will be able to who are in the sandman universe be able to look at writers like yourself and say oh i was there in the room where it happened where we got to see Parnsack like go wild with detective noir and tie horror and be able yeah. to tell those stories as like as the genre evolves and as we all get to experience it on the comic book page. Yeah. So hopefully. I'm really excited. I'm really excited about the story. Um, I know you mentioned that you've mentioned before that this is kind of a blend of pulp noir and uh, Thai horror. I, I, I will 
openly admit I'm not very familiar with Thai horror, so I'm very excited yeah, to yeah. experience that and find out what the differences are and the nuances of it. Because the thing that I've loved so much about your work that I've read is how, like you mentioned, it's personal. It feels like it has perspective. It feels like this is coming from a place of sincerity. And what's more sincere than scaring the crap out of people? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Uh, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been amazing. I, I could talk to you for literally for hours, but I I will. Uh, I know you're a busy guy. You've got so much going on. I'm so excited <laughs> to see the uh, the success that you're having. Um, and I can't wait to pick up the next book that you've got. I, I can't wait to pick up the book that as listener, like I said, you're listening to today. Go pick up Dead Boy Detectives. It's going to be amazing. I can already tell. Um <laughs> But thank you again for coming on the show. It's been amazing. If our uh, listeners want to keep up with you, uh, where can they find you? Yes. Uh, I I am uh, – if Twitter still exists when this comes out, I am at real <laughs> underscore Pornsack. I'm also on Instagram at real underscore PSAC. And yeah, we will see if I have to be on more things <laughs> as, as I, the social media verse evolves. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're we're all trying to figure out what the heck Mastodon is and yeah. all, the, all the other – stuff but hopefully uh if it's not the the end of twitter or the end of the internet as we know it we'll have you back on again i'd love to talk to you again sounds and, good uh open open door invitation is always I, this is fun i would love i would love to absolutely love to come back hell yeah well thanks again for coming on the show uh folks this has been uh in december uh Prince Vichet show talking about the good asian go pick up the good Asian. Hopefully by the time this comes out, we'll be closer to getting that hardcover on the store shelves and go pick up dead boy detectives. It's going to be amazing. Ooh, welcome back to this week's comics countdown. This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop or comicsology or however you decide to pick up your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. Once again, pick of the week of last week as I am recording this a little bit in advance to make sure I'm able to spend time with friends and family for the holiday season. But if you're interested in knowing what I chose for the pick of the week, head on over to our Twitter at Geeksplained Pod, that's at Geeksplained P-O-D, to find out what I liked from that last week. But this week, we have a ton of comics to talk about. 2022 uh, is not going to let us go quietly into that good night. We have 14, count them, 14 comics to check out this week. So let's go ahead and dive into these. First off, a brand new number one that I feel like we also had last year. Wasn't there also... A timeless number one last year? I don't know. But it's timeless number one! Uh, this is another Kang-focused uh, story written by Jed McKay with art by Greg Land, Patrick Zercher, and Salvador LaRocca. And I am very curious to see what they have in store for this. Um, the... I feel like timeless. I I want to say there was a timeless last year. Maybe it was timeless zero or whatever. But like timeless, at this point is the second year in a row that we are getting a Kang story. I I love Kang. I've always loved Kang. And with Kang, you know, showing up in Ant Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, uh, up in this upcoming year, uh, I expect him to pop up at more things. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. A shocking look at the Marvel Universe to come in 2023. 
The Last Battle of Kang the Conqueror. Tyrant of the timeline, master of endless legions, warrior and conqueror without compare. Kang is in search of the one thing he cannot have. But he is not the only one after the missing moment, and Kang soon finds himself in a new position, on the run across the events of the Marvel Universe's future. So yeah, this is going to operate kind of similar to the uh, Dark Crisis Big Bang issue from a couple weeks back, where it was like, here's everything that's happening! Uh, so I, uh, but it looks like we are going to get glimpses and clues as to the storylines we're going to see next year, which I'm always a fan of. I love getting future sight uh, glimpses, so I will be picking this up. This should be very, very interesting. Next up, we have Strange Academy Finals number three, speaking of the future of the Marvel Universe, uh, written by Scotty Young with art by Umberto Ramos. Uh, Finals has been very interesting. I don't know what the plan is, because I feel like last issue made it seem like things got resolved a lot quicker than I was expecting them to. But, I mean, we're here for all-out war against Mr. Gaslamp. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Strange Academy versus Gaslamp. Well, there you go. The fallout of this battle is unlike any you've seen before. Short, sweet, to the point. Uh, I'm wondering what he means by that, but I am. I'm very excited. I've been loving Strange Academy, and this feels like a great, uh, great follow-up, a great uh, wrap-up to this. So I don't know how long Finals is going to go for, but it seems like it's all been kind of going towards this conclusion. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Next up, we have She-Hulk number nine. This is written by Rainbow Roll with art by Takeshi Miyazawa. Uh, this is... I. Okay, so here's the thing. I... First of all, I love this cover. Jen Bartel has been doing the most in these covers. Uh, but it seems like... Maybe this is the end. I thought She-Hulk was an ongoing, but I'm not totally sure. But I've been loving the ride so far. I'm very excited to pick up this issue. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. It's time for the final showdown with our new villains. Can Jen and Jack make it through alive? Again, a short synopsis. Uh, we did get the backstory for the new villains. I think it's interesting, and I do like that they are kind of doing a twisted version off of uh, She-Hulk's original origin. So I also am excited to find out some of the mysteries on why, uh, really why Jack is here. Uh, that They've been teasing it out and teasing it out and teasing it out since the beginning of the series. So I'm excited to find out what they've got in store for us in this ninth issue. Next up, we have Captain America, Symbol of Truth, number eight. This is written by Tochi Onyebuchi with art by Iguara. Uh, I d d we're getting Vampire Falcon. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love that they brought back the vampires from the initial uh, Sam Wilson Captain America run. I, I love that. I, lo I just do. I'm sorry. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. As Falcon's condition worsens, Captain America must fa comes face to face with the unintended consequences of his escalating conflict with the White Wolf. Nomad is willing to make the compromises necessary to take down the Black Panther's errant brother, but can Sam Wilson say the same? And what is Sam's old sparring partner Nightshade doing in Mahanda anyway? That's interesting. It's also the return of my boy, my sweet boy, Ian Rogers. Uh, it's really cool to have him back. It does feel like this is following up a lot 
on that remender era for uh cap for both uh steve and sam so i'm loving both captain america books they are stellar cannot wait to pick this up next up we have detective comics number 1067 this is written by rom v and simon spurrier with art by ivan race and hayden sherman i'm really trying here folks i'm really trying i liked last issue I'm still trying to find my personal connection with Detective Comics. I don't, I, it's probably me, but I, I, maybe I'm just too dumb for, for this series, but I, I, I do think it's incredible. It has a ton of merit. Uh, the storytelling is really top-notch. The art has been incredible. I'm just finding a hard time connecting with it for whatever reason. I don't quite know why. But hopefully this one is going to... Uh, it's going to get me. It's going to get me, gal. Uh, we'll see. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Mr. Freeze encounters an Asmer, one of the demonic beings terrorizing Gotham's villainous underground network. And then Mr. Freeze makes an offer to the Dark Detective that he cannot refuse. Then, the Orgum's werewolf protector gives Two-Face one more chance to tell him who Batman is. In the backup story, take a stroll inside Two-Face and Harvey Dent's mind as they try to have a secret conversation outside the listening ears of a mysterious shadow walking, stalking them in this headspace. I have been enjoying the uh, Harvey Dent stuff. The Harvey Dent stuff in the backups has been really cool. And I'm interested in them continuing on this kind of psychedelic uh, horror deal that they're doing in the backups here. Next up, we have Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, number six. This is written by Jean Lun Yang with art by Marcus Toad. This is the final issue for Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings before it turns into Shang-Chi, Master of the Ten Rings in January, and then ends inexplicably, I'm sure, in March or April. Uh, but I am curious to see how this ends, because we would assume, seeing as how the next series is called Shang-Chi Master of the Ten Rings that he would win the game of rings but the cover shows the rings being shattered and the last issue had a hell of a cliffhanger with uh, potentially Shang-Chi not having any rings so let's see how this goes let's jump into the synopsis the Game of Rings ends here. Shang-Chi has made it to the final round of the Game of Rings. Whoever wins will be the true ring keeper, but will the ring's dark secret prove to be too much to bear for the winner? Yeah, this is going to be very interesting. I'm curious to see how they wrap this all up. Can't wait to grab this issue. Next up, we have Batman Beyond the White Knight number 7 by... Sean Gordon Murphy and Dave Stewart. Uh, this has been a great ride. Uh, I do believe we're heading to the end. Maybe there's one more issue of the... Yeah, there's one more issue of this, I believe. This is 7 of 8. So I'm excited to see what they do exactly with this because they've got a lot of plates spinning and a lot of things to wrap up. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. After a freak accident, Derek Powers has been transformed into the supervillain Blight. With his metahuman abilities, he's more powerful than ever, and it's only a matter of time before Gotham becomes his forever. The Wayne family's reign is over unless their heir to the name, Bruce, and his found family of heroes can figure out a way to take Powers down. Find out what's next for Neo-Gotham in this thrilling penultimate issue. So yeah, uh, I love seeing Blight. I love Batman Beyond. You know how much I love both those characters. Uh, I've really enjoyed this version of the Batman Beyond story, incorporating it being just as much a Bruce story as a Terry story. I am curious to see what they, how they wrap this all up, because with one more issue to go, they've got a lot to resolve. Next up, we've got Dark Web X-Men number two. 
This is written by Jerry Duggan with art by Rod Race. Uh, I've been enjoying Dark Web. So this is going to be interesting to find out exactly uh, how this is going to shake out. Creative team's great. I love the fact that we are getting more of Magic, who also I don't think has had as much of a spotlight in her time as an X-Man as I would have liked. But the fact that she left Limbo to Maddie, and now Maddie is using it to rain Hellfire upon New York, I am, I'm really excited to get more Magic in the mix here. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Reunited, and it feels so bad. Some reunions, like those with an evil ex who rules a dimension of demons, are not so great. Sometimes even having your amazing friends at your side isn't enough to save things. So yeah, uh, this is, like I said, a really fun, isolated event involving just two books. I do really enjoy the fact that the X-Men are more like prominent as a team in this story rather than it just being Coco as a whole so I'm excited to pick this up should be a great time next up we have Tim Drake Robin number four this is written by Megan Fitzmartin with art by Riley Rossmo and I I mean I love the story I love the series I love the creators involved I've been having a ton of fun with it and uh, last issue we got our clue as to the big bad of the series so I'm excited to pick this up let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis Bernard has been kidnapped and only one person can save him his boyfriend Tim Drake plus the Gotham Marina continues to be the target of both political unrest and a string of bizarre crimes with every part of Tim's life seemingly ready to explode can the young sleuth crack the case of his abducted admirer before it's too late so yeah, uh, I, I love the series. Like I said, uh, Fitzmartin and Rossmo are doing a great job here, and I can't wait to pick up this next issue. Next up, we have The Amazing Spider-Man, number 16. This is written by Zeb Wells with art by Ed McGinnis, continuing on Dark Web, and it looks like we're getting the main event here. It's Peter versus Ben for the whatever memories that Ben is trying to steal from Peter. I'm still unclear as to how he's supposed to achieve his goals through his uh, team up with Maddie, but I guess we're going to find out. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Spider-Man versus Chasm. After the battle with Venom last issue, it's time for the main event. That's right, it's Peter Parker versus Ben Riley. No holds barred and the craziest battle you've ever seen. Chasm secures his place in Spidey's rogues gallery as the one who finally vanquishes Peter Parker... Ooh, that's interesting. I'm I'm still of the mind that I wish Ben Riley would just be allowed to exist. But as Chasm, they have done, I think, everything they can do to make him an iconic and interesting villain. So I'll be... I'm excited. I'm very excited to see what they do with this battle. Next up, we have a big landmark. It's Action Comics number 1050. Uh, this is written by Tom Taylor, Joshua Williamson, and Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by, by Clayton Henry, Nick Dragota, and Mike Perkins. This is the big transition to the next era of Superman for the next era of wherever the super family is going. Uh, I will say as a whole, I think that the Philip Kennedy Johnson era of Superman had a lot of great intentions, and I think it did have some really good stories in there. Uh, it's not perfect, and I think that the execution of some of those ideas did not go as well as they could have but as a whole i think it's a great uh great next step into what we're going to be getting next so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis 
the dark crisis is over, and a new dawn shines on the DCU. In the wake of a cataclysmic battle with Mongol, Henry Bendix, and Pariah's Dark Army, Kal-El is back on Earth and here to stay. And the, and the people of our planet are ready to look up, up, and away into a brighter tomorrow. Well, most people. Clark Kent's reunion with Lois and his son John Kent proves fleeting when, when the ultimate attack from Superman's greatest adversary strikes, Lex Luthor. But this time... This time, something is different. Luthor has stolen something from Clark's life, something so important that it will change the very planet itself. If you think you've seen the biggest battle between Superman and Lex Luthor, think again. This clash will rock the course of their lives forever, and it's only the beginning. Two years worth of Superman stories come to a head in this oversized anniversary issue with all-star talent that launches Superman and the DCU into an exciting new era. That's teasing a lot of stuff. So I I don't know what we've got in store, but I can't wait to find out. Next up, we have Once Upon a Time at the End of the World number two. This is written by Jason Aaron with art by Alexander Tefenki. I think it's correct having this come out as we are talking about the good Asian episode. Uh, I love this. I love the first issue. I thought it was really charming, really fun, and I'm excited to continue on this story. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Jason Aaron and Alexander Defenke's fable of bleak future continues in Maceo and Mezzi's childhood years, with nothing but Mezzi's guidebook and her skills as a wastelander to get them through their dangerous post-apocalyptic journey. As time passes and they endure the horrors of plastic tornadoes and frozen sludge, Maceo proves to be more than just a burden, and they make a connection where none seem possible at first. But to their unexpected peril, they might not be as alone as they thought. Yeah, I love the world that they created. I really, uh, I'm excited to explore more of it with Maceo and Mezzi, so cannot wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Exterminators number four. This is written by Leah Williams with art by Carlos Gomez. I have been loving this. This has been one of the best books that Marvel has been putting out. I am sad that we are getting just a limited series out of this and not an ongoing, but they're having as much fun as you possibly can with this along the ride so i can't wait to read this let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis sexy cosplay of death <laughs> it's not the clothes that make the badass it's the asses they kick dazzler boom boom jubilee and wolverine might not be dressed for a beatdown but that's not going to stop them from handing them out make a joke about them they dare you yeah, this has been so much fun to go through this series. I cannot wait to pick this up. This is going to be a wild ride. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is, of course, The Sandman Universe Presents The Dead Boy Detectives number one. It feels correct to have an independent title released for uh, in December, even though it's still technically DC Comics, but... Sandman is the Sandman universe is basically the new vertigo. So I am going to take that as a win here. Uh, I really am excited for this. And it's not just because the conversation that I had with Bornsack for this episode, but I've always really dug the Dead Boy Detectives. I loved seeing them adapted in the Doom Patrol series. And I am really, really interested in the Thai horror that is going to be introduced in this series. Ab Almost forgot. Written by Pornsock Pachet Show with art by Jeff Stokely. 
Yeah, this is going to be one to keep an eye out for, especially if you are a horror fan. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The Sandman universe grows as two of its most beloved characters return to the spotlight. Charles Rowland and Edwin Payne have been detectives for decades, and dead best friends even longer. But their investigation into a Thai American girl's disappearance from her Los Angeles home puts them on a collision course with a new and terrifying ghost that could give even a dead boy nightmares, including a bloodthirsty Krasu. Even scarier than the ghosts, though neither wants to admit it, the boys have been growing apart. And perilously, perilously close spy to the boys' adventure, Thessaly the Witch finds herself held hostage by dangerous magics, both a threat to her life and an insult to her ego that simply will not go unanswered. Eisner Award-winning writer Pornsock Pachette Showed is joined by celebrated artist Jeff Stokely to take the dead boys to the scariest place of all, the heart of Hollywood. So that's also really cool because it's taking place in my town. Uh, I love this. I'm really excited about this. Uh, the Sandman universe has been low-key putting out some bangers for a while now. So if you are into uh, uh, DC, but you want to st you know stretch a little bit into independent comics, uh, the Sandman universe is a great place to start because it does have some DC framework, but it's taking place with characters and with stories that aren't really confined to the DC playground. So give it a look, give it a read, give especially Dead Boy Detectives a read. Uh, I will thank you immensely if you do so. But that is going to do it for the final comics countdown of 2022. They had to go out with a giant-sized amount of comics. To recap, we've got Timeless number one, Strange Academy Finals number three, She-Hulk number nine, Captain America Symbol of Truth number eight, Detective Comics number 1067, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings number six, Batman Beyond the White Knight number seven, Dark Web X-Men number two, Tim Drake Robin number four, The Amazing Spider-Man number 16, Action Comics number 1050 once upon a time at the end of the world number two exterminators number four and the sandman universe presents the dead boy detectives number one uh we didn't quite get up to 22 comics to read this week but for 2022 it's been a wonderful year of comics so let's ring it out the right way by going to your local comic book shop and that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you'd like what to do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me out and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, it, I will read your review here on the podcast. You can write literally anything you want. Anything you want, I will be forced to read every word as long as you give me those five stars. The sky's the limit on what you can write. And you'll be able to join the likes of our Red 13, including Seafire ND, Joshua Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, A Lock and AZ, Sass, and Jedi Jesse 20. Want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you want to be part of our Geek Explained mailbag, send emails to geeksplained at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here on the Wednesday show. If you want to keep up to date with us, participate in polls that decide future episodes, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit on the latest geeky news with me, you can follow us 
at Geeksplained Pod. That's at Geeksplained P-O-D on Instagram and Twitter for however long it lasts. Uh, we are very quickly approaching 400 followers on Twitter, and I would love to ring in the new year with you in that respect. Also, every single Friday is the Geeksplained Book Club, where I, alongside my amazing friends, Malcolm Russell Nelson and Jacob Brown, are going through every single issue of every single volume of Brian Michael Bendis's Ultimate Spider-Man. This Friday, we will continue the adventures of Miles Morales in the 616, uh, continuing on from all of the random stuff he's been getting up to. It has been a wild ride since Miles has entered the main Marvel Universe, and that is not stopping anytime soon. So make sure you tune in this Friday for the latest session of the Geek Explain Book Club. Spidey Fridays are a real thing, so make sure you be there or be square, not a circle. I want to say a huge thank you once again to Pornstock Pachette Show for coming on the show. This was a wonderful way to wrap up the year. I've had a ton of fun getting to uh, really stretch with the podcast this year. It has been kind of wild, to be honest with you. I started this year, and I think I've I've talked about it on the show before. I've started th- I started this year really burned out. Uh, I was having you know troubles with uh, the podcast and with you know you you when you commit your time to something for any length of time, there will be times of burnout. There will be times of just, you know, losing why you enjoy something. But I was able to take a break. I was able to take a month long break where I got to kind of focus on other areas of my life. I got to put out some of my favorite episodes I've ever done for the podcast this year, both before and after said break. I got to have wonderful conversations with incredible creators in the comics realm this year. It was amazing and I'm hoping to have even more conversations with more comics creators this year. Uh just to name a couple. I mean, really I can just name them all here. Uh Ted Brandt and Rose Stein were amazing. We had Jason Aaron to wrap up the Days of Thunder. Megan Fitzmartin, the writer of Robin, we had on. And of course, Porn Sock Pachette Show to talk about the good Asian. This has been a wonderful year of growth for the podcast. I talked about it a couple weeks back about our Spotify wrapped showing that we did get a lot of growth in the podcast, which I cannot thank you all enough for. Thank you for being on this ride with me. It's a very, it's been a very personal year and it's been a very, uh, it's been a very trying year, just in general, with my life. But uh, I hope you enjoyed the content we've put out this year. I know I've had a ton of fun. I know uh, my fellow book club boys have been having a ton of fun putting out uh, the book club every single Friday. And hopefully we'll see you right back here next year. Uh, 2023 should be a big year for us, and I can't wait to navigate that adventure with all of you i am incredibly thankful for you uh whether you have been listening from the beginning whether you jumped on in between uh as we enter our fifth year in the uh in the space with uh this podcast with geek explained i cannot thank you enough for listening it genuinely means the world to me uh next week we will be kicking off 2023 by looking back on the year that was with our end of the year 2022 to wrap up so make sure you tune into that next week same geek time same geek channel but for now for the last time in 2022 and for the geek explained podcast i've been eric azana thank you so much for listening i hope everyone stays safe 
Happy New Year, and we will see you next time. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and days of old lang syne? For old lang syne, dear, for old lang syne, we'll tuck a cup, oh, kindness yet. For days of old Langsyne We twa heran About the braes And prove the gowans fine But we've wandered many Weary fet Since days of old and we twa he peddled in the barn Frae morn and sun till dine But seas between us braid he would Since days of old land sign For old land my dear, for old land sign, we'll tuck a cup, oh kindness yet, for days of old land sign. For all the land sign, the
We'll take a cup of kindness yet for all of Lansine. For all of Lansine, my dear, for all of Lansine, we'll take a cup of kindness yet. For all